So if I'm <laughs> to be entirely honest with you here, I'm not entirely sure I thought through the order of operations. Uh, what do you think? Beers now, beers later. Can start with a beer now and definitely have another beer later and see where <laughs> see where this all goes. Alright, man, there you go. Let me here you go. Ah, Lachaim. Lachaim. Good idea. Beers now, beers later. There are plenty of beers. It is really good to be back with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure and privilege to be back. Yeah. So you've listened to enough of these episodes. Would you like the honor? Honor of what exactly? <laughs> the honor of introducing the podcast. Oh, of course. Of you know course. how it goes. You want to do the thing? I would love to. All right, I'd go for it. <clears throat> Welcome to Forward Living. I'm your host this week, Jacob Rothschild. <laughs> and I'm lucky to be here with my co-host, Daniel Zarr. Lucky indeed. And uh, this week, uh, we are introducing Dr. Rabbi Walter Rothschild. A good man. A very fun man. A serious man. A rabbi. Your dad. Indeed. <laughs> we sat down with him a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. It was pretty intense in a way, wasn't it? It was. It was. There were definitely some, some moments there of true learning and some moments of true comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so I know it was intense for me, but I can only imagine how intense it was for you to sit down with your father talking about what he does for a living. Upon reflection, what really stands mm. out to you from that conversation? Well, it was very interesting for me because I was very excited to see how he answers the questions. My father has quite a way of <laughs> not giving straight answers yeah. a lot of the time. And I felt that it was tough to nail him or nail a, a real answer on his approach to many vocational things for a rabbi like spirituality or faith. Right. But those are hard things to pin anyone down on, right? Like spirituality and faith. Like no one speaks in certain terms about their faith. And I guess in a way it was foolish of me, us, to think that we could pin him down but I think you're right. He was like especially difficult to pin down on matters of faith and spirituality. Yes. And I, I believe I have many reasons. One of them is he likes to teach, but he doesn't like to force his opinion on other people. Yeah. He'll gladly help them form their own opinion on a subject. Right. But he doesn't want his to be taken at face value and passed on. Well, he's as much a man of questions as anything. I actually have half a mind. I was going to ask you about this to call the episode something to the effect of Rabbi Dr. Walter Rothschild has a lot of questions, <laughs> right? That was going to be the, the title of the episode, something to that effect. He's really keen to not be dogmatic, right? Yeah. And I think that's uh, mirrored a lot, I think, if you'll, you'll hear in a moment, that a lot of his examples and similes and explanations have a modern base and a modern bearing and a situation you can probably imagine yourself in, 
instead of throwing some verses and biblical names at you saying you thou shalt not sin. Wait, did, okay. So I actually went into this conversation reasonably convinced that I was going to be hearing a lot of scripture. I was going to be hearing a lot about like a first century rabbi and mm. his sort of dialogue. But he really trammels in the contemporary. He's a thoroughly modern guy in a way. I mean, he's steeped in history. I don't want to take that away from him. But he, at least in our conversation, was fully in the 21st century. Yeah. I'll tell you the very modern rabbi. He's also very similar to a modern politician that you'll never get a straight <laughs> answer. But totally. he'll answer it with a question, with a thought, with an afterthought that makes you leave thinking, what am I thinking about? Yeah, Instead yeah. of actually focusing on the answer that he has given to you, but not so much in a straight way as one would have maybe hoped for. Well, he's thoroughly a provocateur. He is. Yeah. Like father, like son? <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> um, on that note, was there anything that got you thinking? Oh. Or that you kind of weren't expecting or were expecting in this podcast? So I should begin here. I have been thinking about you and thinking about your father uh, since we recorded this conversation. Your father is, all would agree, a deeply interesting, profound, challenging fellow. He's also eminently likable. Mm. And I guess for that reason, I've liked thinking about him and you and your family since we recorded the conversation. But perhaps in some way, like in contradiction to that, there is something he talks about in our recording about the relationship between faith and anger. Do you remember this part? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that anger is in some way at the core of his faith. Yeah. There's this intersection between faith and anger that he discusses rather poetically, and he kind of sets forth this problem of, of Jewish faith. Mm. in relationship to the problems of Jewish history. Yeah. And the ways in which anger drives his faith is something that really stood out to me then, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot since. And I think there's probably a relationship between that and another thing he talks about, which is uh, being a second generation, right, since yeah. the Holocaust. Yeah. And uh, though his anger isn't, fully explained by that there's an intersection there as well and i've been thinking about what it means to be a second generation jew uh, you and i are third generation mm -hmm. it's not the first time i've thought about it but hearing how that informs his faith and his spirituality and his motivation and his motivation to do what he does yeah i've been thinking about that very seriously and rather regularly. And I'm letting it shake me a little bit, right? Like I'm letting that mm. part of the conversation work its way through my soul. Um, I will say there's one more thing since you got me thinking about that. And I'm going to say it's loosely related. Mm. You'll see what I mean. 
he talks also in our conversation about converting people to Judaism. And he seems to have like a real complicated, almost vexed relationship with that part of his work that has to do with conversion. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, those were the things that really stood out to me. The the second generation piece, the relationship between faith and anger and what I want to call the problematics of welcoming converts to the Jewish faith. I should ask, though, is there anything else that really stood out to you in this conversation? Well, I mean, it's maybe a little bit crass, but the one question I really had going through my mind at the end of our conversation Uh was, how many corpses has my dad seen in his life? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. And and when, you know, while I dropped off at a football game and then my dad handled the corpse and came back for dinner or... Right, because he talks about Chavra Kadisha, these burial processes and rituals and right Mm. i've thought about that a few times since as well and for me it wasn't a new information but it's the first time i've actually dealt with that in a deeper sense of actually thinking what my dad actually does what he goes through how many rabbis deal with this and how many congregants or non-jews know this about the vocation of a rabbi and i think his willingness to talk about chavar kadisha it's kind of symbolic in a way of how willing he was to be open to us, mm. be vulnerable with us and and share. I was so grateful to have this experience sitting down in your family living room a week or two ago with all of like the family photos and the detritus. And it was you and me and your father on three different mics at your living room table. It was actually a profoundly moving experience. I've thought about it a couple of times every day since it happened. I guess I should thank you for doing it with me. It was really, it was a nice experience. It definitely was a nice experience. And I would definitely thank you back. Um, Cause A, I got the chance to do this with my father. Yeah. Um, and it was also very interesting to hear the good parts, the bad parts, the fragile moments that people maybe don't recognize or think about. And also for me as a son to realize and recognize what he's goes through, what he has gone through, how he can then also be a person back in a normal family environment instead of the rabbi. Yeah, he's a special cat. You're a special cat. Thank you so much for being part of this process. The pleasure was all mine. So shall we get started? Yeah, man. I think I'm ready. My dear listeners, this is my dear Jacob and I in conversation with his father, Rabbi Walter Rothschild. The one and only. The one and only. Rabbi Dr. Walter Rothschild, welcome to For a Living. Shalom. I shall call you father or dad for the rest of this podcast. I will also. Which is perfectly fine. <laughs> um, how would you describe what you do? What does a rabbi do? There is no simple answer. 
And because I have had a long career of almost 40 years, some of the answers are relevant to some periods of my work and some to other periods of my work. So let me try to explain. For many people, the rabbi is the Jewish equivalent of any other minister of religion, a vicar, a pastor, a pfarrer in Germany. That is to say, he or she, my, one of my sisters, is an excellent and competent rabbi, and uh, I won't say he, she all the time, but uh, one has to accept that this is a modern view of the rabbinate. Uh, the rabbi is expected to be working in a congregation, would be employed by that congregation, would be working almost full-time, that is to say no more than about nine days a week, <laughs> uh, for the interest of the congregants. They are paying his or her salary. So you visit them when they are sick, you visit them when they have domestic crises, you visit them when they are bereaved, you arrange life cycle events, funerals, weddings, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, circumcisions. You don't do the circumcision, but they often like you to be there to say the blessings. Act uh, as the Masadeh Kiddushin at, at a wedding. And uh, you're expected to be at their beck and call when they have questions, queries, problems. And that's quite a full-time position. And this applied very much when I was in my first congregation in Leeds in the north of England for 11 years, 1984 to 1994. I mean this quite seriously. I lived amongst the congregation. Maybe a half to a two-thirds of the community lived within two postal districts. Uh, I had bought a house deliberately in the same postal district. I did my shopping at the same shops where I used to bump into the congregation at the supermarket. Uh, you and my other children I used to take to the Jewish kindergarten. You'd meet people at the gate. You were actually inside the community in a very central way. Later in my career, I have worked part-time in congregations, living and working from Berlin, but visiting communities in Freiburg and Breisgau, in Cologne, in Schleswig-Holstein, in Vienna, in Warsaw, all over the place. And that means I had less chance to visit people in their homes, but would still do the services, would still do that part of it. Now, in terms of the services, in a big congregation, as I had for a short while in Berlin, a cantor would lead the service, and somebody else might even read the Torah, and the rabbi would sit there looking pretty, wearing a talar <laughs> and a barrette. But in the small communities where I much prefer working, where I grew up, where I worked in England, the rabbi does everything. He reads the scroll, he does the preaching, he leads the liturgy. There may be a choir, there may not be a choir, but under normal circumstances, I would be leading the singing as well. I would say, we turn to page 30 for Adon Olam, Adon Olam, Hashem, Allah, and people would follow or not, as the case may be. I didn't have to coordinate with first the organist, then the cantor and stuff like this. I much prefer it that way, but of course it's a big responsibility. So you have the ritual elements and you have the pastoral elements. The educational elements, again, depends on the congregation. If there are a lot of children, you'd be teaching on Sunday school, you'd be preparing several children at a time for bar and bat mitzvahs. In many communities, there would be adults wanting to convert, so they would require normally evening classes, also when they were not working. Then you have very often the situation of representing Judaism to the non-Jewish world. You have the issue of going to interfaith meetings. In Germany, we have very often things for Kristallnacht in November or the Auschwitz liberation on the 27th of January. Uh, in Germany, we also have what we never had in England, uh, this uh, dedication of memorial stones in the pavement, the Stolpersteiner. 
So sometimes he'd be there to represent dead Jews as opposed to talking to living Jews. That's a quite an important issue. Sometimes he would be invited into schools uh, to talk to a class about Judaism or to adults, um, police, nurses, nursing students, people who need to know a little bit about what they might expect to bump into in their own careers. Put all this together and it means that no two days are alike, no two weeks are alike, and it's really, really hard to give a simple answer. But I hope I haven't explained a little bit. On top of that, you are, so to speak, the interface between four to 5,000 years of history and today. You are the interface when it comes to trying to explain to people what an ancient Bible text meant once upon a time and what it can mean now. And on top of that you are very often the interface between the non-Jewish public and the state of Israel, which is not my state. I am not a citizen. I don't pay tax. I haven't done military service. I don't live there. But people assume that I would be the expert to talk about Israel as well. And I take this task very seriously and do it quite a lot. Ignorance is in itself sad, but not necessarily dangerous. Hatred is dangerous. And hatred based on ignorance is where one has to start trying to do some work. Walter, thank you so much for that, that vivid and broad description of, of your work. I, I really appreciate it. And I want to dive into all of that. And, and in particular, I'm, I'm curious about what you have to say about, you know, how you're sort of a medium for history. But before we get in all of that, maybe you could walk us along your path a little bit. Like how and why did you choose to become a rabbi? I was brought up in a religious family, not overly pious, but regular attendance at synagogue, involvement in the community, attending services. I learned to lead services and to sing at services as a kid. And once a month, there was me doing the service, which meant standing at the front and saying, we now turn to page eight, please rise, and launching into it. I can look back now and think, oh my goodness, what must it have been like for the people? But it simply <laughs> meant that I was it was taking seriously the idea that after the mitzvah you are an adult i am not actually impressed with this idea i think our <laughs> attitude to teenagers has changed enormously since the middle ages but nevertheless needs must when the devil drives we had a congregation of maybe 16 to 20 people on a friday night in a beautiful old building i couldn't afford a rabbi and either myself or others would take the service so this meant that by the time i went to university i'd already had a lot of experience Later on, due to some administrative cock-up, I was put down to do the Divinity A-level, not O-level, at school, which by the time they found out the mistake meant that I was eligible to apply to do a theology course at university, not just history, although history had been my first love and my first intention. And by the time we found out the mistake, I was already halfway through the course. So when Wait, I... Wait, hold on. Is this for real? This is for real. Uh, I, was doing, I was doing a class all on my own with Mr. Donald Taylor, and I was doing Divinity A-level. And uh, then when it came to applying for universities, I had a choice of history or theology or so. And he recommended theology, and I decided to go along with it. And he recommended Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, where he had been, and I followed along with it. You have to then get the A-levels, and you have to walk along in your new suit and, and have an interview, and it's all very frightening for a 17-, 18-year-old boy. Um, but um, looking back on it, it seemed that there was a finger nudging me in a certain way, you know, that sort of thing. Wait, hold on, can I ask? So you had planned to study history at Cambridge. Yeah. 
And or Oxford, actually. I think I was more interested in Oxford at that time. And somebody accidentally nudged you in the way of divinity. Do you deem this to be an accident or was it in fact the divine? I cannot answer that question. <laughs> You'll have to ask the boss. Uh, what I can tell you is that I don't believe in coincidences. When I had studied theology and religious studies for three years and been very involved in student Jewish groups and young adult Jewish student groups and so forth, at first I thought, should I become a rabbi? No, it's not right, it's not now. And I decided to go into railway management, but they didn't want me. And then I tried to do a teaching diploma and did a teaching diploma postgrad in one year and did then a, a year of teaching religion in a comprehensive school to a bunch of very difficult children in a dormitory town of London. And then one day I discovered that the job I had, which was effectively replacing a, a woman teacher on maternity leave, was going to come to an end. And she was going to come back to take her post back. I discovered by accident that I wasn't on next term's timetable on a Friday afternoon. Felt very depressed, went to a synagogue service, went to a railway museum, didn't know what to do with myself. And the phone went and it was a, a, a warden from that synagogue who I knew vaguely who said, Walter, I belong to a Jewish burial society. We make each year a small surplus. We like to invest that in community activities. We were thinking of maybe of sponsoring a rabbinical student scholarship. Would you be interested? And at that point, I knew my fate was sealed. <laughs> Your calling had been called. You win, I said to the ceiling. Yeah. In continuance with that, I mean, this is something I know personally for you, from you as my father. Did you maybe feel a second calling in terms of becoming a rabbi in Germany, especially? Or do you feel that you had a certain connected to your father being German by birth? That there was the idea to come back and rebuild Jewish life in Germany as a calling? I think had my career not had certain rather abrupt changes, uh, like having my contract broken in Leeds after 11 hard years, I'd probably have stayed there. And I'd have been okay with it. There'd have been no need to move to London. The congregation was big enough. There were regional responsibilities. The work was very demanding. I had the three kids. Why move Kind und Kegel, as we say in German? Why move the whole lot away just for the sake of the same job somewhere else? So I would quite probably have been one of those rabbis. And I do have certain colleagues who spend 30 years in the same congregation or so. You end up marrying the children that you bermitzvahed. Yes, um, and uh, that would have been okay. I would have been keeping liberal reform Judaism alive in the provinces, in the north of England. When that possibility was taken away from me, and I'm still a little bitter about it, but you know, life goes this way, um, then I had to think what other options, and I applied for other jobs, not in London, but in Scotland, for example, and um, Wales, and didn't get them. And then a job came over first in Austria, in Vienna, and we were going to move to a full-time post in Vienna, but the finance had to be organized by the Orthodox community, which then didn't do it. So we were a bit left, left at the loose end. We went to the Caribbean for a year, to a Dutch island, and then came the offer to come to Germany. And at that point, I thought, okay, let's do it properly. At this point, a circle is closing. My grandfather came from Germany as Walter Rothschild. I go back as Walter Rothschild to Germany and do something. In thinking about your grandfather, Walter, and in thinking about German history in the 20th century, such as it is, and in thinking about your 
profound interest in history, what you coulda, woulda, shoulda, maybe studied. How does your relationship to history guide your work as a rabbi? The way I explain it in my cabaret act is that I wanted to do history because I was fascinated how stupid people were <laughs> and the stupid mistakes they made. I'm glad we rectified all of that. It's also oh, why I went on to study history and I'm currently <laughs> fixing all these problems. Every generation repeats the same stupidities. And while we're sitting here talking now, Russia and Ukraine, China and Taiwan, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Why, why, why are people... You know, no, no, what happened? And then theology thought I could try and work out why it happened. What is the root cause of evil? What is the root issue in human nature? Why can't we see the human being in other people? Why do we feel that God gives us the command to murder everybody else? Stuff like that. So theology was a kind of a context for history. Yeah. In my hobbies, especially railway history, a bit local history and so forth, I can still do a lot of history. But this issue of why are people so afraid of each other? I mean, a tourist will go down the Rhine and see big castles at the top of every mountain, and then, oh, how pretty. And a, and a theologian will think, why did people feel so scared of their neighbors that they dragged heavy stones to the top of a mountain and built thick walls to keep them out? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what does that teach us about defense policy now? <laughs> Never mind about whether to send tanks to this country or that, or how, what percentage of GDP. Do you really trust your neighbors or not? And if not, how do you handle it? Uh, And so forth. So I think theology is a much underrated, uh, I say profession, skill, talent, subject. I also find that many people speak theologically without realizing it, especially IT specialists. They say, this will never go wrong. Now, the word never is a theological word, not a scientific word. Not ever. They're talking of eternity. And I say, hang on, history teaches me that it always goes wrong. (laughs) Science teaches me that if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Every new machine will have teething troubles. Every new metal or equipment or whatever will have problems. If you say you can never be hacked, you will never have your password broken, you will never, you're talking theology. Be aware of that. So I'm trying to make theology fit into the modern world. Is that really the core on some level of what you seek to do is to kind of marry, if you will, the real life problems of the here and now to a broader historical set of traditions and ideas to something maybe beyond human experience, something perhaps greater than humanity? Well, absolute. You see, this is the point for, for all religions. We are mortal. I do not know how long I have still. I hope that I will go before Jacob, my son, but there's no guarantee. Whatever happens, I'm not going to live more than another 30 years. That'll make me 99, okay? And how do I use that time properly? And what happens next? Let's say each of us has a potential for 100 years. And we're talking about a history that goes back thousands of years. How many other people have lived their period and died content, thinking I did my best? Didn't achieve everything, but I've done my best. I've loved, I've been loved. I'm leaving people behind me who will respect me, who will remember me. 
whatever, a, a building, a farm, something. And how many people have not done that? They've either been killed early in some stupid war, trying to conquer a totally useless hill because it's on the map or something like this. Yeah? Um, and, and how many people have been able to teach the next generation? How many people have been able to pass on the accumulated wisdom? First to acquire it takes 40, 50 years, and then to pass it on takes another you know, good few years. Not all old people are wise, but the assumption is that young people are not. And I think that's the really thing, because young people think they know everything, but they don't. So put all of this together, and we are in this interface between mortality and eternity. We believe, I say we, Christians, Muslims, we believe in a being that came existing before us and will exist after us. We believe in a form of existence after that we can't quite define. You know, are we born again? Do we get born again as babies? Do we continue as we were? Is there still marriage? Yenzai, it's no, Jesus says no, there isn't, and so forth. Right. Um, I gave a talk recently about uh, Jewish views of life after death, and I asked for a whiteboard with pens, and I stood there with this whiteboard totally empty, and I said, this is what we know about life after death. <laughs> that was it. it sank in yeah. okay everything is wishful thinking hope faith we don't know it but just assuming that there is something after death how do we prepare ourselves in this world to go over there and not meet people who be murdered not meet people we treated not meet people who've been waiting for us to come so they can get their revenge i i don't believe in heaven and hell in the classic sort of christian medieval way but just think, if everybody who decides they're going to blow up a bus with themselves in it thought, I'm going to go to eternity with these people who may not be very pleased with me, that might just put them off. Whereas if you teach people, go and blow up that bus, they're all unbelievers, you will go to paradise and they won't, then you have a different perspective. So theology can be misused and it can be used also as a, as a warning. To tell a young man of 20 to kill himself seems so bloody stupid. I'd rather tell him to go out and live your life as long as you can and enjoy it, use it creatively. You certainly must see yourself as part of a long, grand, in some ways beautiful, in other ways mysterious mm -hmm. history and tradition. And I wonder if I might be able to get you to talk about maybe one or two rabbis who have guided or, or otherwise inspired your work as a rabbi? There were many, even if they don't realize it, even if it was sometimes subconscious. For example, my first rabbi, Erich Bienheim, he died when I was about seven years old, but he bought me my alphabet. And I've written his biography later because he passed away relatively young with cancer and left no books, no family, and I didn't want him to be totally forgotten. When I was a student and a, later on a graduate student and a rabbinical student, I'd be going to these weekend conferences and rabbis would come and they'd be human. They would sit at the meals or sit in an armchair with a cup of coffee, a mug of coffee, and they would crack jokes and they would have fun. And the, we young people would love being with these you know, grown-ups, but approachable grown-ups. And that's what I learned was so important, to be approachable. So uh, Jonathan Magan, that um, became head of the Bible at the Leobet College, became actually principal for a while after my time, 
who always carries a Bible with him and some colored pens and marks of patterns that he finds in the text, uh, symmetries, uh, con contrasts, and so forth. Quite, uh, quite remarkable patterns that he discovers there. Um, Albert Friedland had a good sense of humor. He was also a an expert on Holocaust literature and theology. He's passed away some years ago. Quite a few of the people who were my good teachers have passed away. Uh, Lionel Blue was um, the first gay rabbi to come out in England. And it caused a bit of a rumpus at the time, and he ran our Beit Din, the religious court. He didn't have a congregation, but he ran the office of the Beit Din. And he treated everybody with respect and with kindness and with gentleness, and basically universally loved. I know a couple of people who didn't like him, but I think that it's their problem, not his. Um, John Rayner, he was actually born Johannes Rahner. He escaped with one rucksack via Italy to, to, out of Germany. Uh, he came to England and he became a liberal rabbi. He was very quiet, very shy, but he had a remarkable sense of humor. He wrote the most remarkable limericks. And <laughs> what I remember, for example, is that he once spent all night sitting up with a congregant who was dying and then came to our morning lecture. And I thought, that's the kind of model one has to follow. Priorities, but don't drop anything. There were some of the good teachers too who had different influences on different ways, but the fact that a rabbi had to be able to work hard, do the job, and keep a sense of humor, putting all those together, that, that's part of it. Um, you mentioned Rabbi Dalla loved, and Rabbi Dalla also respected by many people. One could say that your rabbi, uh, Rabbi Hugo Grin, for example, is often described as very loved by many people and quite a leading figure. Would you say he was also a rabbinical inspiration for you, or was he maybe more a personal inspiration for you? Did his faith kind of rub off on you in that sense? And what does faith to you mean as a rabbi in your daily work? Hugo was my rabbi for many years. Later on, after he passed away, Rabbi David Lilienthal in Holland was my rabbi. Every rabbi needs a rabbi. For those of people listening who don't know who I'm talking about, Hugo was a survivor of Auschwitz. Uh, he and his father were brought to Liberose, which is near Cottbus. His father died there. Hugo has written about this. Hugo has made a documentary film with his daughter about this. He's preached about it, he's spoken on the radio, and yet he retained this enormous energy and this great sense of humor. Non-Jews can't understand this. You know, how can you have a sense of humor after this? And the answer is because that's how he did it. That's how he did it. And I asked him to do our chuppah because your mother's, my wife's father, had been in Auschwitz. He was the only survivor of his family. He had what you might bizarrely call the good luck to be sent to Auschwitz because the rest of the family were sent to Sobibor, where there was just no chance of survival at all. He went straight from the train to the chamber. In Auschwitz, you could work for, and, and die slowly and give you a chance to survive. So it seemed so appropriate to ask him to, to marry the daughter of an Auschwitz survivor to a young man who was the son of a refugee from Germany, and he did this for free, and he did it with love, and it was that sort of thing. So the links were personal and friendship was not just collegial and not just a student to, to, uh, to master, so to speak. When I was having trouble later on in Leeds in my congregation, he had a regular weekly radio program, and he talked about uh, 
a rabbi who was having trouble with the congregation and the congregational leaders were trying to find ways to get rid of him. And one of somebody said, I tell you what, let's spread the word that his daughter is a prostitute. Then he can't stay any longer. Great idea, great idea, says several board members. And then one guy pipes up, hang on, he doesn't have a daughter. Ah, that's his problem, never mind. <laughs> um, and afterwards, I listened to this program and thought, no, no. And then Hugo rang me up and said, did you hear my program? I said, yes, I was thinking of you. Okay, It was nice. So Hugo was a rabbi's rabbi. Uh, he wasn't perfect, and after he passed away, certain secrets came to light and all sorts of stuff, but he was a rabbi's rabbi, and he was a survivor who wanted to rebuild Jewish life in Europe. Now, there were several in interesting issues with growing up in England. There were some people who said, we can't go back to Europe, Europe is dead. We have to build communities here in the north of England, in the provinces, in, in Wales, and so on. And there were other people who said, we've salvaged some of the German Jewish tradition here with the Leobeck College, with the teachers. We should take it back again. I can't really give you names now of who said what or how, except that we were regularly taken to a place called Bendorf near Koblenz to meet Christian and later Muslim theological students for a week or so. And for some of the students, it was their first time into Germany or even the first time abroad. They just knew North London. And it was quite clear that those teachers who took us there, their priority was much wider than just, just Britain. Uh, to that extent, um, it became clear that we had a mission to revive Judaism where possible, let's say in Western Europe. We're talking about the 1970s and 80s, not uh, before die Wende, so to speak. Holland, Switzerland, France, Belgium, Germany. And when I was running the Wuptras conferences with Jacqueline, I used to go out to all of these countries and try and meet youth leaders and rabbis and persuade people to come to our conferences. And I ran a conference in Leiden, and we tried to organize one in Germany, which fell apart at the last minute. And my first priority had been the north of England. And if I hadn't had a falling out with my then chairwoman, I would probably have stayed there till retirement. You lot would all have gone to the local grammar schools and so on, and you'd have been involved in the English um, youth movement and all the rest of it. Life took a change because of this argument in, in Leeds, and that meant that uh, I had to become a European rabbi and not just a British rabbi. And when I've spoken earlier about the different stages of my career and the different things one does, that's partly what I mean. An English rabbi has a very different job. You're living in a country which doesn't have plaques everywhere and mass graves everywhere. Um, you're living in a country which still has a thriving Jewish school movement and a long history and old synagogues. And when you come to Germany, it's all different. Not worse or better, but very, very different. And I am, I think, one of the few people who could adapt to that. I mean, a lot of what you're mentioning right now is very much a cultural Jewish element mm -hmm. and kind of the social Jewish elements of, uh, of the rabbinical work in these countries. Would you have, say, that you maybe encountered different forms of religious faith in these countries or what has kind of defected your personal relationship with faith in different parts of these career steps? To some extent, wherever you find Holocaust survivors, you will find elements of this. But in England, they're in a smaller number. And in Aruba, where we worked in the Caribbean, there were Holocaust survivors there. They were the kernel of the congregation, but they were still small in number. Come to Holland, come to Germany, and they're the majority at that time. 
we are talking, of course, still of the late 1970s, 1980s, and many of them have passed away since then. But at that time, very influential was the fact that I had a lot of members who would say, I don't believe in God, but I want to belong to the congregation, or I want a Jewish funeral, um, or I want a rabbi to say the prayers when I go, which my, the rest of my family didn't get. It was expressed in bizarre ways, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. For example, I recall that the Reform Synagogues of Great Britain produced uh, a series of pamphlets, and I was asked to do one on cremation. I think I volunteered, but oh, people, people were asked at the rabbinical conference, please, who will do this one, that one, the weddings, conversions? And I did the one on cremation. And Hugo Grin was actually very upset about it because his family had been cremated. Whereas in England, I was officiating at um, three or four cremations a month. It was about half and half funerals and, and cremations. And for him, this was a horror. Whereas for me, it was normality. So in Europe, cremation is much less common, although it does happen. I have officiated at some. In Leeds and Bradford and around Manchester and Hull, it was half and half. So that's a slight difference there. Why is that relevant? Well, the faith is partly a case of, is there going to be resurrection? And traditional Judaism says, for the body to be resurrected, it has to be fairly intact. Now, this is illogical, obviously. It's superstitious, obviously. Bodies decay. But the idea of deliberately burning a body was like denying the chance of resurrection for some people. And... Uh, I don't share that attitude. I share the more modern attitude that the soul is separate from the body and the body can be blown up in, a, in an aircraft accident or something like this, or a bomb blast, and it doesn't matter that it's not intact. But for many people, even in Israel now, it's so important to gather together all the bits of a body after a terrorist attack and make sure everything's buried together, if at all possible. So there are areas where faith and practice will differ depending on the surrounding circumstances. Can I ask you a direct and perhaps mm. too personal question. Do you consider yourself to be a man of faith? And if so, how does that faith inform your work? I have a faith, but I hate having to try to define it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I won't even try too hard here today. My faith is complex because it is combined with anger. Many people find anger something negative, say, put it behind you, get over it. And I say, no, anger is a part of my faith. What I have very strongly is what psychologists call the second generation syndrome. There's plenty of literature about it now. When I first began recognizing my own symptoms, it was still a quite a new event. And I only met one psychiatrist, and he was in Holland, who actually was able to work with this thing. Now it's become quite common. Um, there's now talk about the third generation syndrome and so forth. Second generation means you grow up always aware that your parents suffered. One or both parents. Now, a normal kid, a normal teenager, and I've had to bring up three of them, will at some point want to rebel against their parents and argue and say, you idiot, you fool, you don't understand anything, and all the normal stuff. We've been through this, my goodness. Amen. And yet, <laughs> when you have a sense of sympathy for your fair parent, and you don't want to hurt them anymore, and you know that they didn't have their father with them, that holds you back from expressing this anger, this growing up anger. 
which therefore turns inwards. It doesn't go away, it turns inwards. And then you look for another way, place to express his anger, and it's at God. How could you, you stupid God, let this happen so that my dad is in such a way that I can't argue with him? It gets very complicated, but I think you will see what I'm getting at. Um, it's suppressed and it's misdirected, and it can turn to it can turn to all kinds of things. I mean, enough teenagers go into bulimia and anorexia and drugs and God knows what else is, uh, because they're not quite sure how to express their normal rage. Um, this Jewish approach, growing up in the 1950s, learning that I was named after a man who was sent to Dachau and then died of the consequences later, knowing that um, your grandfather, my grandfather. Walter Rothschild, I'm named after him, mm -hmm. born in Hanover. Um, knowing that when we went on holidays to visit my grandmother in Baden-Baden, my father could say, that's where the synagogue used to be, and that's where I was meant to have a bar mitzvah training, but we had to stop because of Kristallnacht, and on that bench it used to say, no Jews or dogs allowed here, and stuff like this. So you're walk walking toward an ice cream shop, and you'd say, along that street, that's where they used to shoot people. Yeah. So summer holidays were tinged with this. My father did not make a big fuss about it. Not a big fuss, but he was always in the background. I remember sitting next to him at Yom Kippur when the names of the dead are read out for the memorial service. And I'm a little boy of five or six or seven, and I'm sitting there bored stiff playing with his talit and so on. And up goes old Mr. Leibovitch and says, Walter Rothschild. And I go cold. My God, my name is being read out. I was dead. And then I realize what's, what's happening. So to that extent, my faith is there but it is constantly challenged and challenging. There are certain prayers which I find more difficult to say. Blessed are you, you love your people Israel. And it expresses itself also in great um, impatience, I think, with people who are naive and simplistic in their faith. Not just Jews and not just Christians, but there are some Jews and others who will say, oh, put on your tefillin, have a mezuzah, and Hashem will love you and everything will be fine. I get so angry at this approach. Uh, it's not just, not just frustration and irritation. I get angry at this approach. How dare you be so stupid after what has happened to millions of people? So second-generation syndrome means that you are inheriting the 5,000 years of Jewish history with all the bad things about it, crusades, pogroms, destructions of the temple, exile in Babylon, and so forth, and very specifically, 20th century history. Now, I know other people who have it slightly differently to me, but I also know that when I meet people who have it, we share a sort of bond in a certain sort of way. Um, one of the big issues I'm currently facing in my rabbinical life in Germany now is that many of my colleagues are people who have converted to Judaism. They know a lot, they do a lot, they're sometimes very nice and competent people, but they don't share this bond. And in fact, there is occasional anger when um, a well-meaning converted person who is now a rabbi gets up at a memorial service and say, oh Lord, what happened to us and to our people and how it, what we feel about it. This we and this us is a very emotional thing in Germany, much more than in England, much more than in England. So I think there are elements where I can read the prayer book and think, yes, there's a God. There are plenty of times each day when I can say, you know, hi God, thank you God, I feel okay, I'm in touch somehow with God. Not a formal prayer, but just an awareness. 
And at the same time, when it's growing up in a continent filled with ashes and rubble and bone fragments, and there is no way around that. Every street is bloodstained. There is no way around that. I remember the first time I went to Dachau. I was a student on interrail ticket, and I got to Munich, and I spent the night in the waiting room with my rucksack half asleep, and got the first train at, I don't know, 4.30 in the morning to Dachau, and arrived at the um, station. It's a suburb of Munich. There's a big sign there saying, Welcome to Dachau, our parks, our industry, our castle, and so on. And a little black and white sign to the side saying, Gedenkstätte this way. So I followed that sign and walked along and found a camp and walked in and looked around and took some photographs, thinking, Here's where granddad, my grandfather was. And suddenly a guy said, What are you doing here? And I said, I'm just, just looking around, just taking photos. We're not open yet, you'll have to wait. So I had to go outside and wait till nine o'clock. And I thought, I'm the first Jew in history who's been told to leave Dachau because we're not open. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But you see, Jews, when Jews go on holiday, they visit concentration camps. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. A lot of people go to the beaches and, and we go to, it's like dogs going back to where they've been whipped, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Hey, listen, I kind of have a follow up on the faith question. Mm. Clearly, your faith is complicated because you're a thinking man. The faith is wrapped up in anger, but on some level, your your congregants, the people in your community, they look to you for guidance. And in part, they look to you for guidance because they believe that you have a sense of what God wants for them, what God wants for us. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you get a sense of what God wants from you and what God wants for his people? And I think the best way I can react to this question is by denying its validity, politely. That is to say, when I'm talking to people who want guidance, I will tell them, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go into it together. Let's discuss it, where you are, where you come from, where you want to go to, what are the different options you are facing, what factors may affect the choice you make might be about who to marry, what course of study to do, what job to do, whether to move to Israel or not. I don't know what God wants for them, I'll say. If I did, I'd be a very bad rabbi. I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet in that respect. So I can share my own personal... Um, let me use the word fragility here. I'm not quite sure it totally applies, but uh, my lack of certainty... And that en encourages people at least to feel that they have someone they can talk to and talk with and listen to. Um, I always say that Judaism has wonderful questions, but dreadful answers. And the people you must be most afraid of in the world are people who have answers, because people who have answers stop asking questions. And if you still have questions and they think you shouldn't have questions anymore, then they turn against you. So the dogma, we don't have dogma in Judaism. We have a few basic principles, but we don't have a dogma that says you must believe this and you must believe that. And one of the amazing things about Judaism is you can be a good Jew without believing anything. As an atheist, humanist Jew, but observant and nice and following the ethical commands and feeling part of the community. You can also be a very strongly believing, very pious fundamentalist Jew and be an absolute asshole. Yeah. So to that extent, if, if I say, look, I don't know why your, your wife died. I'm sorry. I'm sorry she died. She was a nice lady. I liked what I knew of her. You knew her better than me. Let's talk what we're going to do now, how we're going to handle it. 
I don't have answers for them. So to that extent, uh, as I said earlier, my job involves so many different things. Some of them is performing the ritual, some of it is talking to the people. Talking about ritual ceremonies and stuff like that, from a rabbinical perspective, what is the value of a ceremony and what ceremonies do you, as a rabbi, maybe most enjoy? And obviously we have the main ones of Barbat mitzvahs, weddings, funerals, but are there any others that you would also count as extremely valuable in a rabbinical perspective at least? Rituals are important to people in all sorts of ways, and we all have them, even if they're not religious rituals. You know, how you brush your teeth, how you wipe your bottom. Now, a life cycle ritual, which are the ones you've mentioned, sort of say, how do I mark the fact that I'm going to promise to live with this person for the rest of my life or till whatever? Um, how do I acknowledge that my kid has now become too old to treat as a kid anymore, even if they're a bit young to treat as an adult? Funerals, how do I close the gap left by this person leaving me? And so on. And the rituals are there for these purposes. And they always have been in every religion, not just Judaism. And I think some can be better than others. I think a lot depends if you stick to traditional languages that people don't understand, or whether you change to a language that people do understand, or, or do both. You know, read the traditional Aramaic Kaddish and then translate it. I think, in my own experience, a good funeral is the best. It sounds a bit of a shock to some people if I say that. At least you know the person's going to stay where you put them. Uh, if you do a wedding, you can't guarantee they'll stay together. If you do a mitzvah, well, today you are boy, Jonathan, well done, you are now a member of our community. You can't guarantee they're going to come back again the next week or any other time after that. Um, but when you feel the person has died, they've had a good send-off, I've said the right things, people appreciated what I said about the departed, they appreciated having a chance to recite the prayers with me, I didn't rush them, didn't take too long. That's actually a good feeling. You know, I've done my job properly. Another thing you haven't mentioned would be to do with attending a mikveh when somebody goes for conversion, for example. For them, it's an enormous change in their whole lifetime. For me, it's a technicality. I need to make sure they go fully under the water and say the right blessings and the right sequence and so on. Obviously, I do it for men. Uh, women do it for women, witnesses. Um, another part would be preparing the body for funerals. The Chavah Kedisha. There's a slab of dead meat on a, on, a, on a marble or tin slab, and you have to wash it and dry it and dress it in the grave clothes and cover a little bit of Israeli soil on it and say the prayers and so on. And at the end of it, you feel quite exhausted, but you feel it had to be done, and we've done it. Um, some, I mean, it's not, it's not a public ritual. There'll be three or four of you in the mortuary doing it. You need a minimum of three just to lift and carry and do everything. And again, men do men, women do women and children. Uh, and sometimes you knew the person and sometimes you didn't know the person. Um, there was a colleague of mine who once said I wanted to write a book called Pink, People I Never Knew, which would be all the, the Hespers, all the eulogies he had to give at funerals for people he'd ever met when they were alive. But when he died, he was told, oh, what wonderful husbands they were, how religious they were, how pious, how good, and so on. And uh, I wish I'd known them when they were around. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's an element of all of these things together, and uh, it's hard to say how or why, but sometimes you just leave an event, a wedding, a mitzvah, feeling good, and sometimes you feel, what a waste of time. 
it didn't go down well. They weren't concentrating. They weren't listening. It wasn't. It wasn't going doing what I wanted it to do, and, and that's frustrating. Now there were certain issues related to the minyan, the concept of having a minimum of ten adult Jewish males uh, before you can do a service. And I grew up in a synagogue where quite often there'd be only three or four of us. And so it, to me, it just seemed obvious you just do what you can and don't worry about it. Mm. And for other people, this is a major issue. And I haven't, often have fights with people where they say, it's forbidden to say this prayer without 10 people present. And I say, no, it's not forbidden. It just, just doesn't count as a community prayer. It counts as individual prayer. I've often used the example of uh, kicking a football around. Any two or three boys can do that, no problem. If you want a team, you need 11. So anybody can pray whenever they want to. If you want to have a formal service, you need 10. But you don't forbid people from touching a football just because there are not 11 people you know, on the pitch. So we have the need to improvise in where I'm doing services. I have led services in old cinemas, Old cinema waiting rooms, dentists' waiting rooms with big pictures of teeth on the uh, on the wall, in, in a Methodist chapel where I had to get there early to take the cross down off the wall and then at the end of the service put it back up again. Um, I've done services on trains and on trams. We hired a special tram in Freiburg and went around the whole system doing Simchat Torah and inviting people. Uh, you, did, you did that in Vienna once too. In Vienna, we, went, we took a tram around the ring. It doesn't work anymore around the ring. It's a pity they changed the routes. But we just uh, we had a little electric battery powered Hanukkah and a big box of donuts. We went around giving them to people and saying, hello, this is a Jewish festival and so on. Yeah, I mean, there are ways. There are ways of making it come alive. Sometimes it really works and sometimes it doesn't. One big issue is whether other people have a sense of humour, how formal they are, how prepared they are to improvise and change, how prepared they are to accept the need for change. I have met people who would rather cancel a service than go ahead with eight people. And it's a big issue, it's a big argument. And in Europe, after what happened, to find even eight Jews in one town who prepared to come is already quite something. I'm not going to spoil it for those who got out of bed and came just because somebody else says we can't do it. Mm. Yeah. I was bar mitzvah, you were bar mitzvah. Our listeners, if they're familiar with anything about the Jewish tradition and history, probably has something to do with bar mitzvah. Can you talk a bit about how you prepare for bar and bat mitzvah and what your role is as a rabbi? At a bar mitzvah? Here in Germany, it's very difficult. But if I was to speak of my time in Leeds, I would meet once a week with the kids. Of course, you meet with the family. You'll find all kinds of tensions coming up. Sometimes the father's not Jewish. Okay, you know, He hasn't had a bar mitzvah. He can't relate to it. Or the grandparents aren't Jewish. Or whatever may have happened. You'll find all kinds of arguments about are you doing it for the boy, for the father, for the grandfather? You will find a boy who goes to a school where he's the only Jew in town and he feels quite victimized and guilty about it. You'll find boys or, or girls who go to places where there's a whole crowd of Jewish kids who like to argue with each other. So there's no <laughs> simple, single you know, rule of thumb. Yeah. I am terribly conscious of the fact that Bar Mitzvah has become a, a holy cow. Yeah. In the Talmud, it says, not 2,000 years ago, that a boy becomes a man when he's 13 years old and has two pubic hairs. I've never yet checked. 
Thank God for that. The girl becomes a maid when she is 12 years and has two pubic hairs. And she becomes a woman when she's 12 years and six months and a day and has two pubic hairs. In other words, the whole ceremony is linked to puberty, to the idea that from this point on you can be married off and you're capable of either bearing a child or starting a child. What do we have now? We have teenagers who are still very, very young, voice just breaking, no, no facial hair yet, um, including the girls. Uh, and, um, and what does it mean to be an adult? And our class, my role is largely being that. The other teachers could handle more of the repetitive and teaching the kids something. My argument would be, do they understand the content? Do they understand the context? And very often they didn't. Or they'd be using all kinds of words in their translation which they didn't understand. You know, and Abraham took a concubine. What's a concubine? I don't know. Well, why didn't you ask? Okay, it's just hopeless if you're not going to look at the words and understand them properly. So I would always take a much more proactive, fighting, aggressive role in teaching and saying, for God, heaven's sake, you're going to have to get out there and do it. Um, my job would be to help them prepare their talk, their sermon. And I'd say, you've got as long as you want. You can say whatever you want. You can stand there and you can say, I find this bit of Bible very boring and I don't understand it at all. You're allowed to say that. And then you can continue with, however, as a young Jewish man, I feel I ought, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, sometimes they did this, very rarely, but sometimes they, they understood what I was getting at. Okay. The grown-ups are sitting there, you're on the pulpit, you tell them what you think. So in terms of preparing somebody for adult life, it isn't just a matter of the rituals and the prayers and the blessings and oh heavens and all the rest of it. It isn't just a matter of teaching them to stand up straight and talk loud and slow and get into the microphone and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a case of making them think about what does it mean for me to stop being a kid and no, I'm not becoming an adult, but I'm becoming a teenager. Can I ask you if you felt it was part of your work as a rabbi to get them to feel the gravity of it or to get them to feel some meaning in it, to try to seize the moment to connect them to Judaism? Because for a lot of young Jewish people, this is the end or the beginning of the end yep. of their relationship to Judaism. But that's exactly my point. That's why it's become a holy cow with which I disagree. Um, in the liberal movement in England, they tried to move it to the age of 16 for confirmation. There was an enormous amount of resistance from the parents. No, it has to be 13. And you see, there are certain issues in Judaism which have become fixed without anybody understanding them. It's become fixed that a woman has to go to the mikvah after menstruation. In the Talmud, it's just as fixed that a man has to go to the mikvah after seminal emission. That's quietly forgotten. Um, it's fixed that you can't do this and that on the Shabbat. If you ask why, nobody knows why. It's fixed that a woman can't do this on the synagogue. Ask them why. Oh, it's tradition. But they, they don't know why. So they're fixed on the idea of 13. If I was to say to them, and a couple of times I was so angry that I almost did, um, look, uh, your daughter, she's very pretty. Uh, she's now 13. Um, I can see what a wonderful breast she's developing. Are you prepared to marry her off now? Good God, no, she's not till she's 18. Because uh, she even think about it. Aha, so that's the difference. She's not an adult. In your eyes, she's still your child. You're a baby, you're a toddler. Parents always look at their kids and see the toddler. The outsiders, teachers, see them as they come into the room, what age they really are. And my argument is always that it's not about the performance. It's not about the 
saying the blessings in a nice, clear, treble voice. It's about getting this person to think about will religion have a part to play in their future life. Now, at 13, the chances are very strong that they won't come back because their parents don't bring them back. They have to be in the car. But when they become students, when they become breaking out from the home, from the nest, will religion then play a part? I don't mind so much of the 14, 15, 16-year-olds don't come. It's frustrating, but I don't mind. But I want them to come back when they're 20. So, Walter, a lot of what you're trying to do with these young people at their bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, is to create a space for for them to learn, right? You're, you're trying to teach them. And I know that a lot of your work is wrapped up in teaching. You have different mediums that you've deployed to teach people, one of which is, is writing. And on your website, you say that you write because you have to, and, and, and it's a must. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, you do write a lot. I'd be grateful if I could get you to talk about how you write sermons. Like, where does the sermon writing process start? And if you would be so kind, it would be awesome if you could share an example of a sermon that is, shall we say, particularly valuable to you. The need to write is separate from the need to teach, but of course the two overlap greatly. I often used to find that when I walked the dog in England, round the block, or when I walked back from taking my younger daughter to school each morning, 20 minutes, 25 minutes along the streets, I would come back with my head filled with a poem, a song, an article, a sermon, a story or something, and I had to sit down and write it out. Originally, in England, we're talking about the olden days, the Stone Age before laptops. Um, I would go out to a particular pub east of Leeds to write up my High Holy Day sermons longhand on, on A4 paper. That seems a long time ago now. And for the High Holy Days, I still prefer to write them out. But nowadays, I don't. Nowadays, I just do things with a few basic ideas. I often write them out later. Uh, My children demanded a story from me every night, and I had to develop a story for them every night, which I would make up on the spot and then write it down later. At other times, though, going onto the pulpit, I would have an idea that just comes from something I observe, something I notice, something that just comes out and hits you between the eyes. I can think of a couple of examples. Um, I'll just briefly give you one and a bit more of the other. One was reading in a railway magazine about a, a train that used to work late at night from Augsburg to some local branch line, but only if 10 people came. A little footnote in the timetable. I wrote what it's like to be traveling all the way to Augsburg, perhaps with a family, perhaps with an invalid, and you don't know when you get there if that train's going to run. It all depends if enough people turn up for them to run the train. And how, how symbolic that is of a congregation. But another one that comes to mind, I can think of several which either went down very well or less well. I went with the children once to Vienna for Rosh Hashanah, and we went then to Prague for a day or two, and we came back to Vienna, and I scrapped my sermon and wrote a new one because I had seen that in Vienna in those days, the horses that pulled the little carriages around, the droshkis, just left their pferdeäpfel, their dung, all over the street. 
and twice a day a little machine from Magistratsabteilung Front von 30 would come and go brrr with brushes and scoop it all up. But in Prague, the horses that pulled the droskies there had a little bag under their tail to catch it. But then I came back and I said, I've just been to Prague and I've seen that we have here an example of the same problem and two different ways of handling it. Either you let whatever your mess onto the street and let the public pay for clearing it up, or you catch it yourself and take it home and work it out yourself. And at the end of that, as I just said, you see, rabbis don't just talk horseshit, they can talk about <laughs> it and get a moral message. So you can find a moral message in almost anything. Including horse manure. Including horse manure, <laughs> if you approach it from a certain way. What I do like to do is to fit a joke in relatively early, and some people now expect that, and other people are still shocked. But that gets them sitting up and listening. And I've experienced as a congregant some dreadful, long, droning, academic approaches. And I've also seen people who treat it like a cabaret is being a little too, too, too difficult. But you, you lean forward, you catch people's eyes, you look at the people in the back row, and you tell them something, and they listen. And that's what a homily is really about. I normally have the practice in my congregations when I have got congregational work to give a sermon on the Friday night, evening of Sabbath, and on the morning to talk about the Bible portion. So I said, before we read from Exodus chapter something or other, let me tell you the background and what's going on and how it was, and then try and link it. So my morning sermons are much more biblically based and my evening sermons are much more current events or whatever the current big problem might be. On the whole, I think I'm quite proud of my ability to do that. A couple of times you think, oh God, that didn't go down well, or you think of a wonderful simile just 10 minutes too late, but that's the way life is. So you just mentioned about sermons, kind of certain meanings, and your Saturday ones are maybe a little bit more biblical. Would you say that there's other certain prayers that maybe hold a certain particular meaning to you that you come across in a, a Sabbath service? For those who are not aware, we have a fixed liturgy and a very extensive one. And it's expected that you can do it all competently, either in the Hebrew or the Landessprache, nowadays German or English. And it's expected that you can say it all with the same degree of commitment. There are certain things I've learned over the years. One is that if you go a whole service and you don't get hit by something, by some word jumping off the page and hitting you between the eyes, then it's a boring service. And you never know which word it will be, or sentence, or phrase. It depends on you, your life, your state of health, what you've, what you've been doing. There have been times when um, I've had a personal crisis, let's face it, when, you, when your mother and I were having problems starting a family, and you read a psalm that says, blessed is God who makes the unfruitful woman a happy mother of children. I think, how the heck can I say amen to that? And other times um, when it says, and you shall tell your son on that day, and you just had an argument with your son that morning, <laughs> again, it has a certain little flavor. You see what I mean? It has to be personal. Now, you're doing two things at the same time. You are leading the service for other people, and you're trying to pray for yourself. I assume that's what we're talking about in this question. Private prayer is a, is a separate thing. Uh, but when you're up there doing it all, what will hit you? Now, I have a few p personal favorites. You're quite right. 
one of them in the morning service is the Elohaina Shamash Natata Bita My God, the soul you give me is pure. You created it, you formed it, you put it in me. One day you will take it from me to everlasting life. So there you go, birth and death in, in a couple of sentences. Um, as long as the soul is within me, I will declare that you are the master of all deeds, rule of all creatures, and blessed are you who brings the dead into everlasting life. There are some lines that resonate with me, some lines that don't, but I can at least understand them, and some lines where I really have difficulty. And a classic example is the Grace After Meals, where there's a line towards the end. It says, I was young, I'm now old, I've never seen a good person starving. And after the war, the Dutch rabbis changed that. They said, we can no longer say that. We have seen good people starving. And you make it part of your life's work to try to explain the complexities of these problems to Jews and non-Jews alike. In fact, you've chosen to make it part of your work to explain Judaism to, let's call them, interested non-Jews. Um, and you seem to spend a substantial amount of time, in fact, participating in interfaith dialogues. In fact, in 2005, you were awarded the Knight's Cross of the Republic of Poland by then-Polish oh, president Lord, yes, yes. Alexander Kwaniewski uh, for your work in Christian-Jewish and Jewish-Polish dialogue. I guess I kind of wonder what you hope to achieve by participating in interfaith dialogues? Again, it would be foolish of me to attempt a simple answer. The issue with the cross came as a bit of a surprise, by the way. Somebody nominated me and I had no idea till the week before it happened. Um, but still, I always say it's better they put the cross on the Jew than the Jew on the cross. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, you see, one can laugh at this. One of the issues I need to do is to show people that Jews are normal. It sounds crazy. Don't they know that? The answer is no, they don't. It has really, truly, literally happened to me that somebody has said, where are your horns? I can't see them. And they had been taught that Jews have horns because of the rays of light coming from Moses and the, the Moses statue of Michelangelo. So when... I go to a church or school or something, I say, hello, I'm Walter, and I crack a naughty joke, I laugh at them, I ask their names and so forth, and they suddenly realize this is a rabbi here who's actually a human being. And I think that's the most important thing I can get across. They're going to forget almost everything else. If I think back to my time uh, in, in the sixth form at school, we would have guest speakers, and some of them were dreadfully tedious, and some were really amusing, and at the end you couldn't remember much of what they'd said, but you know you'd had an interesting time. I remember one guy came in to talk about the subject, is there intelligent life on earth? Okay. And he kept us in, in, rolling in the aisles for 45 minutes. Um, is there intelligent life on earth? I still don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> but <laughs> it made us think about things in a certain way. Now, I'm not going to teach them a lot of Bible, a lot of prayer. I can show them a talit, I can show them a kippah, I can write on the blackboard what kosher food is and what animals are allowed. I can do various things. I can show them what the Hebrew letters look like. They'll, they'll forget most of it. But they'll hopefully remember, oh, Jews aren't that bad after all. Uh, and if 10 years down the line, when somebody's trying to get them to join a political party, they have that in the back of their heads. That's already a big success. I like that. I think this work of just trying to humanize all people, and in this case, Jewish people, is critically important, especially in these divisive times. I wish more people knew about the Jewish faith. I wish more people knew about the work of the rabbi. I wonder what you wish more people knew 
about the work of the rabbi? No two rabbis are alike, and no two rabbis' jobs are alike. The congregations are different, the movements that they are working in are different, orthodox, conservative, liberal. The countries they are working in are different. They need to understand that a rabbi has to be very flexible and very firm at the same time. They have to maintain their personal integrity, their personal faith, and at the same time be open to all kinds of people. If you're visiting somebody in prison, there's no point saying, I don't like sinners. If you're talking to somebody who's going through a mental illness, uh, they're also part of God's creation, you know. It's really challenging. I wouldn't really want to do anything else. There were times that I really felt like curling into a little ball and just going away and closing the door for a week, but sooner or later the work's there and it has to be done. And the things that have most annoyed me have been actually Jewish lay leaderships in communities who don't understand what a rabbi does. They think very often the rabbi is a priest whose job is to do what they tell him. If you look at the Bible, God says to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, to do this and to do that. He has to turn up on a Wednesday and make two bullocks and one lamb. On a Thursday, it has to be one bullock, three lambs and a, and a dove and all that kind of stuff. And the priest just had to do what he was told. It was actually a very limiting job being a priest. You had to be clean, you had to turn up on time, you had to be healthy, you had to slaughter the animal, cut it up, scatter the blood, burn bits of it, eat bits of it, and go home off duty. As a rabbi, you're never off duty. So a rabbi is not a priest. A rabbi is also a bit of a prophet. He has to tell people what you're doing is wrong, do it differently. And the Jewish prophets always had the task of using that most important word in, in, in Hebrew and in English, if, it's im in Hebrew, if you do this, this will happen. If you change your attitude, then it won't happen. You always had the choice. So very often the problems that have come have come from people misinterpreting my role. They will say the rabbi should not get involved in running the congregation. Actually, he should. He should be part of it. He may, may not have a vote. He's an employee. But he's entitled to speak to the committee and say, look, this is what I advise, this is what I criticize, this is what I suggest. In Germany, you're told, no, you're an Angestelter, keep out of it. But in England, I was part of the board. Ex officio, automatic. And that's normal. What would be your advice to young people interested in becoming rabbis? Well, this is going to sound a little strange, but I would say, first of all, wait, become an older person. If you're going to take on a job like this, don't do it age 23, 24. Secondly, it's good to have another professional qualification first. Have a teaching job or an accountancy or an insurance selling job, anything like that, so that if you have a problem with being a rabbi, you can go back to something else. That's enormously important. Uh, there were times when I nearly did go back to teaching or to something else. And you are going to have ups and downs in your career, and there are going to be times you'll be questioning yourself and challenging, and you'll have a family to support, and you, there's no other option but to just to do another job. So, I mean, I have known successful rabbis who went back to doing dentistry one day a week, or social work on the, on the side, or something like this. Have another job. Don't do it too soon. I was once asked by a German-Jewish newspaper, what does a rabbi need in Germany? I said, a rich wife. <laughs> uh, and they printed it. Um, yeah. Sometimes the pay is really 
poor. Sometimes you're on a, on a raw basis. No one cares a damn about your pension fund. No one cares about your life insurance, your health insurance. You need to care for that. You need a good financial advisor, a good tax advisor. I have had some good ones and some less good ones. But I'm very serious. A congregation will say, we didn't like your last sermon, we're throwing you out. It's happened to me three times, four times. And they don't care that you're a person with a family and a mortgage and a car to pay for and all that kind of stuff. You are really, uh, the German word is freiwillig. You're just a, free, uh, a victim for whatever egos are on the community's executive board at the time. Sometimes you just know too much about them and they're little peccadilloes. So you need to have this, this buffer, this cushion, yeah? Having a working spouse, having some savings, having another job, something like this. You mentioned quite a bit how your work has evolved, especially over decades, different countries, yeah. different systems. Could I maybe ask you what you would like to see your rabbinical legacy as? There are times, especially in the past year or so, when I've got really depressed about feeling that I haven't done a great deal. And uh, partly because it's, I'm now 69 years old, I'm living in a rented flat, uh, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. But trying to find a new role, trying to find a new way of continuing my rabbinical work. But then I look back, and what I'm very proud of are my writings. Uh, people will tell me, oh, you helped this individual and that individual shouldn't feel down. And that's nice. They mean it well and so on. But, you know, I, I never rose that high up the career ladder in as much as there is one. I never became the Oberrabiner of somewhere. I don't know if I would have wanted it, but I just didn't. Uh, and the fact is that when I do eventually close my eyes and pop my clogs, as we say in England, uh, there will be works out there, my, my guide to liberal Judaism as it is now, the honey and the sting, my short stories, I let somebody else explain them They're on the website too, rabbinical short stories, humorous short stories, parodies, the biography of my first rabbi, Rabbi Beanheim, the biography of my grandfather, which is basically a whole family history, not quite finished, but nearly there. Um, I'm very proud of my railway magazine. I've been publishing for 20 years, so every quarter, a magazine about Middle East railways, which gives me an opportunity to print facts about Israel that most people don't know, and facts about the history of the Middle East, which most people don't know. And I often find when I get into political debates with people, they haven't a clue about the mandate period, the League of Nations, mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire, and stuff like that. So my way into those abstract concepts is, what railway lines were built, what railway lines were sabotaged, what railway lines were planned and never got built and so on. And I've done that at, at some cost. I mean, I've done all the work for free and somebody else has done some printing for free, but um, I, I lose money on each issue. But that's, again, part of my legacy. There are folders in different libraries and archives around the world with a whole set of Harakeret. What about just maybe more purely your rabbinical legacy? That's part of it, you see. I'm... I'm not just a rabbi, I'm a Jew who with an interest in Israel and Middle East and all that that implies. And as a rabbi, I can speak with some authority about parts of it, but not about others. I don't want to get too involved in current politics, but I do want to give historical context. As a rabbi, I often say to people when we come to interfaith meetings, please go through the books of Chronicles, Samuel, Kings, and show me where there was ever peace. Yeah, because people assume there was a peace in the Middle East until you know, the, the naughty Jews came in 1948 mm. or 67. I say, no, they would never look at the Bible. It's constant wars, constant campaigns, constant rubble. Um, and every now and then you get a, 
the word is menucha, not shalom. Uh, so-and-so was a good king, and he smote the enemies, and there was ruhe, there was calm. Content, ceasefire, right? No, ceasefire, ceasefire, you might say, okay, um, for 20 years. It'll say somewhere in the Book of Kings, like that kind of thing, okay? But it never says there was peace. Mm. So in other respects, the same applies to interfaith meetings. Why don't you believe in Jesus? Well, why should I? Um, we Jews don't believe in original sin. We believe we were given a clean, pure soul, which we have to give back as clean as possible. It won't be perfect, but clean as possible. And if we haven't got a, a sin ingrained into it at the beginning, we don't need to have it washed away. We don't need a savior. We just don't need it. Oh, we didn't know that. Uh, people often confuse Judaism and Christianity in a syncretistic kind of way, or they don't realize that the Judaism we have now is rabbinical Judaism, not Bible Judaism. So a group will come to the synagogue and they say, where's the altar? You know, what does the priest do? And I say, I'm sorry. If you want to see anything that reminds you of the Temple of Jerusalem with an altar and priests wearing robes and burning incense and having a sacrament, go to a Catholic church. Yeah. Um, oh, they're not used to that. So what does Judaism mean to you in that case? If I make an F something that deep yep. in such a kind of interjection. Well, it's who I am. It's who I am. I'm often angry with it. I'm often frustrated with it. I often wish it was a little better, a little different, or a little more comfortable. Um, it means being a minority everywhere you go. Even in Israel, you're a minority by being a liberal Jew. Yeah. Um, it, it means having to be on the defensive very often. It means having to be always alert for potential threats, which can come out of a clear blue sky. Uh, it means I have a context for my life that I believe there was a reason why I was born, that I believe that death is not the total end. I don't know what comes next. I really don't. But as you know, I recently, in the last few years, lost both my parents, your grandparents, and I still talk to them. And I still think they talk to me. So I believe very much that religion gives me a context in which I can live my current life. Uh, it's not always easy, and I make mistakes, and I feel very lonely sometimes and very lost and wondering why on earth it's been so difficult and you know, couldn't somebody have handled some other problem some other way without having me going through this trouble. But at the end of the day, I have to live with myself, and that's been a terribly important lesson for me. Sooner or later you're on your own and in the coffin you'll be on your own and you have to keep going walter I'm, i'm really and truly grateful and i i hope that to drive this train into the station if you will mm -hmm. you could recommend to our listeners something that that illustrates or influences your work this could be a book a song a film could be anything you want something that you would want our listeners to check out and i will link to that in the show notes to this episode I've written serious books. I have written less serious books, parodies. I perform in a jazz band where I sing songs which I have written, parodying serious stuff. I do cabaret where I talk about some of the issues I've been faced with in my career. I, I, I think if you can acquire anywhere on the internet from a second-hand antiquarian bookshop, a normal Jewish prayer book it can be a very tatty cover, it can be very small print, it might be hard to understand, but a prayer book with the language you speak. So English is what we're talking here today. Get, you know, there are different kinds of prayer books, it doesn't matter. Just get hold of one and flick through it and see what Jews have for centuries 
been trying to say. Say to each other, say to God, say to their community, say to themselves. You don't have to pray it. You certainly don't have to be Jewish. But if you can see a copy of what we do and read in the synagogue, this would give you a chance to understand a little better why we think the way we do and what we think. That will help to develop your perspective on us. Walter Rothschild, thank you so much for joining your son and I on For a Living. Thank you very much. Shalom. We form here a little trinity. And there you have it, my friends. Our conversation with Rabbi Dr. Walter Rothschild. As promised, there's a lot of there there. I enjoyed every second of it. I enjoyed being able to reconnect with my man, Jacob. Still here in the studio. Still here. Still here. Of course, as always, I provided links to some of the things we talked about and otherwise referred to in the show notes of this program. The Good Rabbi is prolific. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of books, a lot of meditations. I've linked to those. And if you enjoyed our conversation, if you support this project, please head over to patreon.com slash for a living. The link to that is also in the show notes. You can show your support by just shoving a few shekels my way. <laughs> right? Shoving some shekels all the way to the good things. Shoving the shekels. <laughs> We're here <laughs> just drinking beer and shuffling the shekels. Yeah, listen, if you enjoy these conversations, if you support the project, if this thing means something to you, I can't do it without you. So please do show your support if you can. And shuffle those shekels. And shuffle the shekels. So Jacob, mm -hmm. how did the conversation suit you? Did it scratch the itch? Did you learn something? Did you connect to the conversation? Were there stones unturned? Was there anything you wish he would have expounded upon, elaborated on? There were many things that I found very interesting in this conversation, many things I knew beforehand, and also many things that I found a new light on. Yeah. There were some stones left unturned that I would probably take up with my father after this show. Yeah, you have the luxury of doing that. Yeah, in Indeed I do, and I do yeah. do it quite often. But I generally thought he did give quite a nice all-round viewpoint of what being a rabbi is and that there is no one day in the life of a rabbi or even one year. Yeah. And that there's no two rabbis alike. Yeah. I also have the privilege, my aunt, as my father mentioned, is also a rabbi and right. she handles things very differently. So I think already within one family and two rabbis, you have enough differences. <laughs> I got to get her on the podcast. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's going to be my next podcast. Just me in conversation with rabbis. Or the various members of the Rothschild clan. <laughs> that would be interesting too. Yes. Yeah. Or a monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. There's that whole thing too, isn't there? But it was truly a pleasure and it was truly really fun having my dad talk about his vocation and also talk about his uh, insights. Yeah. But hey, how about for you? Were there any questions he dodged successfully or any questions <laughs> you kind of felt that you wanted a bit more information or deeper answers into? 
I mean, I'm grateful for all he was willing to share. There was a certain vulnerability there and I learned a lot and I enjoyed the experience. Just like I said, sitting at the table with you and your pops. Mm. We didn't mention that your sister was sitting on the couch in the background, kind of shout out to my sister. She would murder me if I didn't shout out. So yeah, shout out Brecca. She's pretty cool. She's very cool. I like the cut of her jib. Your whole family has great smiles. I like this about you people. It's easy to smile along with you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. So there was some circumlocution. He has his own way of navigating questions. You know, my first and most direct answer to question is I'm deeply satisfied. I'm profoundly grateful. It was a wonderful opportunity. That said, if I could get him to elaborate on something, to answer a question Mm. more directly, I am interested in the role that spirituality plays in his practice. He talked about the relationship between faith and anger. He talked about, shall I say, the complications of spirituality. But there's a spirit to your dad. And I think that that spirit, in his case, has something to do with what I want to loosely call spirituality. I have the sense that your father is not only deeply connected to something that transcends our daily experience, but that he's deeply connected to a a history that's undefinable, that's broad and rich and deeply problematic and sometimes troubling and often inspiring, but also sometimes deeply dark. And he lives with that on his shoulders all day, every day. (laughs) And yet, there's always a smile with the guy. There's always a joke. There's always a random act of kindness. And that is what I'm going to very loosely call spirituality. And if I could turn back time and find a way to tap into that with him, with you and your sister in the same room, I would love to hear him talk more about that. So next time you see him, Mm -hmm. if you could get him to do just that, report back to me and tell me what he has to say about the ways in which spirituality guides his work as a rabbi, but also just as a fellow traveler, which I think is how he sees himself. I would be profoundly grateful, but I couldn't be more grateful than I already am. Jacob Rothschild, it has been a pleasure walking this road with you. Thank you so much for being here in the process, making it happen. This has been really fun to reconnect with you and to learn about your pops and to just share space with you. I appreciate it. That's awesome to hear. And I definitely appreciate it also. It's been a a journey for me and uh, the journey I have thoroughly enjoyed. 
Thank you very much for your time. Call it a wrap? Call it a wrap. All right. One more beer. One more beer. Oh, bony one. <laughs> for work in the morning. <laughs> All right. There it is. Would this be a good time to ask for a good circumcision joke? <laughs> I don't want. I don't want. I don't want. I didn't want to cut your answer short. But is there cutting something else short? <laughs> a young boy is preparing his bar for speech. He says to his mother, "Mum, where do we Jews come from?" She says, "Well, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I suppose. Huh? And where do they come from? Oh, well, I suppose Adam and Eve, if I think about it." Uh, where do they come from, Mum? I don't know. Well, from God. God made them. Ah, oh, thank you. So he writes this down. He goes into the living room. He says, hey, Dad, I've just been talking to Mum, and she, she says that we Jews, we come from God. Ah, young lad, don't, don't believe everything she says. Don't, be, don't believe all that rubbish. It's evolution. There are millions of years we've evolved and changed and come down from the primates, from monkeys. We're descended from the apes. Ah, oh, thank you, Dad. So he goes back to the kitchen and says, Mum, I've just been talking to Dad. Now look, you say we come from God, we Jews, and he says we come from monkeys. How can that be right? Ah, don't worry, boy. Um, he's talking about his side of the family. I'm talking about my <laughs> side. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there it is. <laughs>